Amen. I'm going to start the message this morning in a way that I never thought that I would. I'm going to quote Madonna. <laughs> and for those of you who are a little younger, uh, Madonna in the 80s, 90s, when I was younger, uh, she was way bigger than Lady Gaga. You can think Lady Gaga like times 10. She was a pop, pop icon that was just shaping our culture uh, in, a, in a huge way in, in music, in the movies, in fashion. And so she really was a larger-than-life figure. And it's interesting, at the height of, of her popularity, she did an interview, and she said this, My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I become somebody... I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. When I read that quote, my reaction is that it makes me sad, and it's more relatable than I wish. (laughs) It's sad just reading someone who so many people in the world looked up to, so many people in the world thought she had it all, and we get an inside look at, at how she felt about herself. And I think that inside look, we can relate to it. And the reason is because all of us want to be significant. All of us want to be somebody. Philosophers call this the the drive to validate our existence, to prove that our lives actually matter, that they are actually significant. And so all of us, we're, we're searching to build our lives on something that will give us meaning, that will, that will make us significant. But what we see here betrayed is that as we do that, we're all haunted by a, a sense of insecurity. We're all haunted by the, the fear that even if, even if there's something that makes us feel important, that we could easily lose it, and it could be taken away from us. And I, I share that because it ties in so well with our passage this morning. If there's one big idea I want you to hold on to, it's this. It's empty and evil to try to make yourself somebody apart from Christ. It's empty, and it's also evil to try and make yourself somebody, to try and build your identity apart from Christ. To see that in our text, to work through it, we're going to break it into two main points. We're going to look at man's towering pride and God's thoughtful plan. So man's towering pride and God's thoughtful plan. For our first main point, let me just set the context of our passage for you. After Noah's sin, at the end of chapter 9, all of chapter 10 is known as the Table of the Nations, and it's another genealogy tracing the descendants of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and they're spread through the known world. Now, I have a picture here that kind of summarizes that chapter. You can't see all the details, but Japheth is in the red, so his descendants spread out into that region. In the yellow is Shem's descendants, and in the green is Ham's descendants. And so this showed the world at the time, the nations of the world to Moses's audience. But then in chapter 11, we're going to we're going to learn how did the world come to that? How did how did the nations become dispersed and go from just Noah and his family to spread out around the known world? That's what brings us to our our passage today with the Tower of Babel. And the question I want to start with is one that I bet many of you who've grown up in the church have wondered. And that question is, 
what is the big deal about Babel? Most of us know, know the general story. And I think it can be easy to wonder, God is obviously not happy about what's going on here, but why? Is God anti-architecture? You know, is, is, it, is it a sin to build a skyscraper? You know, what, what's going on here? Well, the, the sin, it's not explicitly stated in the passage. It's described, but not specifically identified. But verses 3 through 4 captures a few key lines of dialogue between the people of Babel that uncover the sin that made Babel such a big deal. So as I read these two verses, I want you to see if you can spot it. They said to each other, Come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used bricks for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered throughout the earth. In verse 3, we see the people of Babel urging one another to make bricks. And this may indicate a new uh, construction innovation that they had developed and were excited to begin to build with. Bricks and mortar made possible a, a permanence in construction that far surpassed many of the normal building materials of that time. And there's you know, still uh, some truth in that today. Think about the story of the three little pigs. The, the straw, right? The wood. That didn't work out very well for the pigs, but it was the bricks, right? It was the pig who built out of bricks. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting to build a sturdy city or tower, but verse 4 it shows us that the issue was the motivation for what they did. It's the motivation for why they built. They, they were motivated by a great pride. Now, all human sin at its root is motivated by pride. Pride can be expressed in millions of, of countless ways, but we're going to look at three specific ways that it was expressed at Babel. And the first is that they were motiva- motivated to build out of self-exaltation. We see that in verse 4 when they say that they want to make a name for themselves. That's why they want to build. They say, let's make a name for ourselves. Like Madonna, they want to be somebody. They want to be significant. They want to be respected and, and remembered. And, and this language, it should immediately concern us if we've been reading Genesis closely because the only other time in this book that it mentions anyone making a name for themselves is in the reference to the Nephilim back in chapter 6. The Nephilim, they were the mighty warriors who were famous for their violent exploits. They made a name for themselves. And they were part of the generation that was so, fi- so vile that they prompted God to wipe out all of humanity with the flood. I think it's, it's hard for us. We rarely recognize how evil it is to exalt ourselves, to, to try and impress other people. So what we do naturally in our sin is we, we take the things that God has given us, the gifts, the resources, and instead of glorifying him, we try to use those to glorify ourselves. We're looking again for something to make us significant. So that's what we naturally do. And um, one of the many ways that people try to do that is through fame and success. That's been true since the the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, and it's still true of our culture today. But there there is something totally new in terms of the the avenue of pursuing fame and success in our culture, and that's social media. Now, social media, what it does is it allows people who um, 
just ordinary people who normally wouldn't have any influence outside of their circle of friends to produce something and put it out there with the hopes of it going viral, with the hopes of it, it leading to, to millions and millions of people becoming their followers. And that's happened. There's many people who that has happened to them. And so I don't know if you realize this, but many kids in our country today and in England, they're growing up, and the, the thing that they're excited about, it's not being a movie star. It's not, it's not being you know, famous or a teacher or a firefighter. Many young kids are growing up, and they're, their number one profession that they'd like to be is an influencer on social media. I saw some stats today. I'm sorry, not today, but this, this week, there was a study that went out. Three out of 10 kids who are asked out of a number of the most popular professions that young kids want to be, three out of 10, more than any other uh, group, three out of 10 said they wanted to be social media influencers. Now, social media isn't inherently a bad thing. It can be used really well. But hopefully all of you are aware of the, the potential dangers of it. Social media, it, can't, it not only can become addicting, it can easily distort the way that we view reality and the way that we do relationships with one another. And I'd say all of us need to be aware of that, but I'd say especially parents. If you have kids, I hope you've looked at the research that shows the, the link between heavier social media use and greater anxiety, greater depression, greater body image issues. If you haven't looked into it before, one resource that I think is eye-opening, there's a documentary called The Social Dilemma, it has a number of the people who helped develop the technology for social media, and they explain the ways that it is intentionally addictive and the reasons they got out because of how, how destructive they saw it was in so many people's lives, including often their own. So I'd re recommend you check that out. Some of you might be hearing this, thinking to yourself, the last thing I would ever want in life is to be a social media influencer. Like, that sounds terrible, and I, I'm with you. I would not... I would not want that life. But while you might not care about being famous out in the world, what I've noticed in myself and others is that all of us want to be famous in some way in our own little world. We all want to be significant in our world somehow. Whether it's something as trivial as being the best cook, being the smartest in your friend group, the best looking, the best parent. Maybe it's the most skilled member of your team or staff at work. This creeps in all over the place in our lives, and sadly, it can creep in in the church. And we can find our identity in how big our ministry is or having a recognized leadership role or people who respect us and come to us for counsel. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not, it's not bad to be respected or to be remembered. That is a good thing, but it is wrong to make your reputation and status more important to you than God's reputation and his opinion of you. And that happens when we seek a name for ourselves independent of God. And that brings us to the second aspect of Babel's sinful pride, which was their attitude of autonomy. Look again at verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let it, let's make a name for ourselves, otherwise we'll be scattered throughout the earth. These people, they were not building the city for God but for themselves. They weren't seeking to honor the name of God who gave them their life. They're seeking to make a name for themselves, independent from him, and they were willing to openly rebel against him in the process. Now, that can be easy to miss if you're not paying attention, but remember, what, 
What is their fear if they don't build a city and a tower? They're afraid that they'll be scattered throughout the earth. Now, God specifically commanded humanity in Genesis chapter 1 to be fruitful and multiply and what? Fill the earth. And then he repeated that command to Noah and Noah's sons. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. This would have been fresh in humanity's consciousness after the flood. And yet the people of Babel, they say, no. No, we don't want, we don't want to do that. We don't want to disperse. We, we want to stay and we want to remain, remain here together. The sin of autonomy it leads individuals, it leads, it leads groups of people to see themselves and their internal dreams and desires as the greatest authority in life. Instead of recognizing the creator and submitting to his commands, autonomy leads human beings to naturally function as our own gods. And that's exactly what happened at the fall, of, the fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3. Remember the, remember the serpent? He tempted them by saying, God knows if you eat this fruit you're going to become like him, knowing good from evil. And what he was saying is, God is holding you back. God is withholding good from you. It will be better, instead of listening to God, instead of listening, listening to your creator, it will be better for you to function as your own God, to decide right and wrong for yourself. That spirit that's still at work in, in our culture today. It's the narrative that dominates Hollywood and our culture. You just think of the phrase, follow your heart. Follow your dreams. Be true to yourself. Our generation has a radical devotion to personal and moral autonomy, and, and it views being true to one's inner desires and encouraging other people to do the same as the highest moral good. This is why many people in our culture, they feel morally obligated to affirm whatever lifestyle choices or identity people claim for themselves. I saw an example of this recently. There's a, a video, and in it, it's a few years old, but there's a, a white guy, he's about five foot nine, and he goes to the, the campus of, I think, Washington University, and he goes there, and the context is that there was some debate in Washington at the time about men identifying as women and using women's locker rooms. And so, the, so what he did is he'd go up and ask people if they were aware of that debate, college students, and then he would ask them, hey, what would you say if I identified as a woman? And he showed many, many people in this interview, and all the ones he showed, they were double thumbs up, like, that's what you think? Then we'll totally affirm that. And he said, okay, what if, um, what if I identify as a Chinese woman? How would you respond to that? And there's a little bit more hesitation, but the majority are like, well, if you think you're a Chinese woman, that's great, good for you. Like, we'll, you know, we'll support you. That's fine. And he said, what if I identified as a six foot five Chinese woman? And so this is a short white guy. And these, many of these college students are like, oh, like they, were, they weren't sure. Most, most of them are like, I don't think you're six foot five. But what was really interesting to me is that when he leaned in, he said, would you tell me I'm wrong? If you don't think I'm actually six foot five, would you tell me I'm wrong? And the vast majority couldn't do it. They said, well, if, you know, if, if you want to believe you're six foot five, that, that's fine. I'm not gonna, it's not my place to tell you that you're not six foot five. And I thought to myself, that, that's where autonomy leads us. 
it's to this idea that we, we can define our own reality, even in terms of are we male or female, our own, our own morality, in terms of our ethics. And that's a, you know, that is obviously a dramatic example, but the spirit of autonomy, that's the same spirit that leads Christians, professing Christians, who aren't married to sleep with their boyfriend or girlfriend, who know what God says, and say, I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. It's the same, the same spirit that, that leads to Christians, you and me, knowing what God wants us to do and ignoring it, saying, it's okay for me to function independently of God. You know, as serious and as clear as those sins are in this passage, Many scholars, they speculate that there's something else going on as well. They think that the Tower of Babel was also the building of a new false religion. And what they point to is that in verse 4, when it says that they want to build a tower to the sky, sky is literally to the heavens. It's used in Genesis to describe God's dwelling place. Now, if that's true, the Tower of Babel, it is the perfect symbol of all false religions throughout all of history because false religion at its core is human beings' attempts to reach heaven by our own efforts. The t- towers of this era were often ziggurats and they, they were shaped like and looked like giant stairways ascending into the heavens. Now, the people of Babel likely intended to make sacrifices at the top of their tower earning the favor of the, the false gods that they had made for themselves. The, the thinking of Babel, that thought process, it's not limited to tribal religions. It's not limited to Islam or major Eastern religions, but it's often found in countries that have a Christian background. It's found all over the place in, like I mentioned, our country, and sadly, it's even found in many, many churches. Now, what about you? Why do you think that you should go to heaven. If you, think you, if you think you should go to heaven, why? Why should you be let in? Is it because you're a good person? Is it because you've been deeply religious? Is it because you are honest or a hard worker or a good parent? Because you've been baptized? Because, you, because you're a loyal, a loyal friend? If you think that you deserve to be accepted by God or allowed into heaven because of how you've lived or sacrifices you've made, then you've been guilty of trying to build your own tower into heaven like the people of Babel. Now we're, we're going to circle back to this in a little bit. But to recap, what we see in verses 1 through 4 is we see that the people of Babel, they built a, tow- a proud tower in rebellion to the Lord. And the question then is, how does he respond? What does the Lord do? And that brings us to our second main point, God's thoughtful plan. We'll pick up the account in verse 5. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, if they've begun to do this as one people having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. The passage goes on to describe how and God divide, or he divided their languages. He confused their speech. In a casual reading of those verses, they can seem to put God in a bad light. Have you ever thought about that before? It almost sounds like God was caught off guard by what they were doing and even threatened by his creatures. Now, we, 
know from the rest of the Bible that God sovereignly is aware of the end from the beginning. Nothing can surprise God. We know that he's all-powerful. That's why in Daniel it says all the nations of the earth are like nothing compared to him. And if all of humanity, if every living creature, if all weapons in the world were aimed at God at once, he'd be no more threatened then than he is now. He created all of us. He sustains all of us. Our life is dependent on him. And so we, we know that's not the case. We know that's not what was going on with God. But actually, a closer reading of just this passage, even without the rest of Scripture, it helps to prove the same point. See, the, the Tower of Babel, it's a literary masterpiece in the original language. Almost all the commentaries point out that it uses carefully placed word plays all throughout the story to help build the, the suspense and carry the story along. But there's also a special literary technique known as a chiasmus. And Schreiner shared, shared one a few weeks ago. This is pretty common in Genesis. But I have a, a picture of the chiasmus here in Genesis 11. And what happens in these is that the, in A, the whole earth had one language. That's the start of the passage. And it mirrors kind of through the end of the passage. And so the whole passage, it funnels down with these similarities to the pivot point in the middle. And that center point there, that's the main emphasis of the writer. And what is it? The Lord came down. <laughs> the Lord came down. Remember verses 1 through 4? The people of, of Babel, they're so excited to, to build a tower, this great achievement for themselves, this permanent monument, an ancient wonder of the world. And yet in poetic and intentionally ironic language, Moses describes God as having to come down to see their mighty effort. It's almost like someone getting down on all fours with a magnifying glass to search for something small that's been dropped. That's, the, that's what is being conveyed here. Instead of presenting God as threatened by humanity, it's actually a parody showing that, that all of sinful humanity's most united and impressive accomplishments are actually pathetic and offensive in the eyes of God. They want to build a strong tower up to heaven so they won't be scattered, and God, he effortlessly shuts them down, and then he scatters them anyway. They want to, to make a great name for themselves, but instead they end up with the humbling name Babel, mocking that they can't even understand one another anymore, that they have unintelligible speech the Tower of Babel reminds me of what Jesus said in Luke 16, 15. That which is highly esteemed in the eyes of men is detestable in the sight of God. Now, for all of you who are believers here, I want to be clear, that's not the way that God looks at our efforts of faith. He sees our imperfect faith, and the Bible says that in Christ, he's pleased by them. He's pleased by the smallest acts of faith in him. Tower of Babel, though, what it's doing is it's warning us not to get swept up into the proud rebellion of those in this world who live independently of God and his word. In response to the, to the proud plans of the Tower of Babel, God, he confused the one world language at that time, and he scattered humanity throughout the world with this new diversity of languages. Now, we're not told precisely how God did this. I would, I would love to be a fly on the wall and have watched this happen. Like, we don't know, did they just wake up one morning 
and they all had these different languages and couldn't understand each other? Or did it happen in the middle of a work day? Like imagine just working, talking to someone else, and all of a sudden, it's like you can't, you can no longer understand them. It's like watching a movie in English, and someone flips it to Mandarin Chinese without subtitles. <laughs> I was tracking, and now I have no idea what's going on. This reminds me of my wife. She's from Indonesia, and we went there for our, our honeymoon for about three weeks and had a great time. But uh, in Indonesia, most people speak Indonesian. <laughs> so not, not many people speak English. And so it was a wonderful time with her family, but I, I felt, you know, incapable of doing almost any of the normal tasks that I would do for myself outside of her house. Because without her or a couple other people who speak English, I had no ability to communicate with other people. And all, all of you have probably had uh, experiences like that, talking, talking to someone where there's these big language barriers that make it so difficult to understand one another. And that, that's what's happening here. God used that to stop the tower from being built. And most Christians, they're, they're aware of that part of the story. But an important question that I think many Christians don't ask themselves is why did God do this? Yeah, it stopped, it stopped the tower, but is there a bigger point to the Tower of Babel? Does it fit in a larger way into redemptive history? Because we know God doesn't do random. This wasn't a knee-jerk reaction to the people of, of Babel. So what was the reason for it? And I think the, the key to that is in verse 6. God, he obviously knew the, the great capacity that he'd put within humans as his image bearers. And he led Moses to record his awareness of the many more great feats that human beings could accomplish if they were united. It's interesting to me that I tend to think of unity as, as always a good thing. But here we see it, it's not an inherent virtue. It depends on what you're united for. The, the people at the Tower of Babel, they were united in rebellion against God. The dividing of languages then was a very gentle punishment of humanity compared to the flood, but it also seems to, to have had a preventative aspect of it as well, to protect humanity from even greater rebellion and a collective hardening of their hearts towards God. And the image I had in my mind as I was studying this week is there's times as parents, if you have multiple kids, there's times that you separate your kids from each other because they're fighting, but there's other times where you separate them because I think you're up to something. Like, it's like, it's more dangerous if you're together. You guys need to be apart. I think you're, you're scheming right now. We need, to have, we need to have you in separate rooms for a little bit. And it, in a sense, it seems like that's a part of what God is doing here. He knows it's not, it's not good because of humanity's sinfulness for them to be united in their languages like this. And we know for sure that God used the Tower of Babel to ultimately fulfill his purpose for humanity that he set out in the very first chapter of Genesis, to have the, the whole earth filled with image bearers. And that's what has led to the diverse cultures and peoples all over the world. The Tower of Babel, then, it is a key in the biblical storyline because up until this point in Genesis, the whole scope of the book has been focused on humanity at large. But in the, the last section of the book that we're going to get into, starting next week, what happens is that the, the wide-angle lens, the author stops using that, and he zooms in from all of humanity down to a single family, 
down to Abraham. And he traces how Abraham's family becomes a great nation. Now, does that mean that God loses his interest in all the other nations? Well, of course not. As we're going to see soon in Genesis 12, God's eternal plan was to bless all the nations of the world through Abraham's offspring, ultimately through Christ. God has always had a a heart for the nations, and the whole Old Testament is loaded with references to God's plan for the nations and prophecies about how they would all one day know him and worship him. I think a valid question, though, if, if this is all you had in the Bible, up to Genesis chapter 11, a valid question would be, how could proud and sinful human beings who are now more deeply divided by different languages and cultures than ever before, how could they be united in the worship of God? Well, if you try to answer that question from an autonomous or independent perspective, that would be an impossible task. That would be a fool's errand. Because of our, our own pride and sin, no matter how much good we tried to do, or how much religious effort we invested, we'd never be able to reach God or heaven on our own. We'll never be able to to create the peace on earth and unity on earth that we desire because of sin. Because we can never reach God on our own, that's why God came down to us. At the Tower of, of Babel, God figuratively came down to earth, and he did that to confuse mankind's speech as a punishment for their sin. But centuries later, God would come down again, this time physically, in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came not to punish our sin like we deserve, but to be punished in our place on the cross. We're not made right then with God by any sacrifices that we bring to him, but we we can only be made right through his perfect sacrifice for us. All who, who turn from trusting in themselves and their works to trust in Christ's finished work, his perfect work for us on the cross. They can be forgiven of their sin and our proud efforts to to build a name for ourselves apart from him. Ephesians 2, it beautifully captures how the gospel, it doesn't just unite us to God through Christ, but it also unites us to other believers. It shows that that the gospel has the power to tear down walls of racial and ethnic hostility so that the church is functionally united. It's practically united in Christ. Now Christ, do you remember what he was called? I think this is so interesting, thinking about the confusion of the languages of Babel. What did, what did the apostle John call Jesus at the start of his gospel? Jesus is the word. He's the speech from God, the communication, the perfect expression of God. And because of his perfect life, death for our sins, and resurrection from the dead, Christ is able to speak to and transform people out of every tribe and language and nation when they hear it and they respond in faith. The gospel is the thing that brings people from all over the world, all different nations, into one glorious kingdom. Pentecost illustrated this dramatically just after Christ had ascended into heaven. Do you, do you remember what happened in Acts chapter 2? In Acts chapter 2, all the believers who were filled with the Holy Spirit began to do what? They began to speak in other languages, languages that they had never learned. They supernaturally were given that ability by the Holy Spirit. Have you ever wondered why God allowed that miracle to happen at the very founding of the church? Well, he did it 
to vividly demonstrate that the gospel of Christ is for all the nations. It's good news and the only hope for every single person in the world, regardless of what nation they live in or, or language that they speak. While I was studying this week, I, I learned that there was a great explosion of art depicting the Tower of Babel during the Great Reformation. I have a, a picture here of one of those works of the Tower of Babel, incomplete. Do you know why that, that became so popular? Well, at the time of the Reformation, worship service, they were only conducted in Latin, which most of the people at that time didn't understand, and that was by the order of the Roman Catholic Church. And the Bible, it was only available in Latin, again, by the, the order of the church. And so most people, you know, apart from the church leaders and scholars, they had no way to read the scriptures for themselves. And the Reformation, one of the things that they championed was the idea that God's word, it should be made available to every person in their own language and that the gospel should be preached to all the nations. And, and so the Tower of Babel, it was a fitting image. It was a, a fitting reminder of the church's mission. And believers all over the world, we have a unity that can transcend culture because of our shared love for Jesus Christ. And even though language barriers can create challenges now, as believers, we look forward to the day promised in Revelation 5. In Revelation 7, the scene around the throne where people from every tongue and tribe and nation, they're going to be worshiping the Lord together with one voice saying, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered. To receive, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing, people will be worshiping Christ in awe together with one voice, understanding one another again. And what, what a moment that will be. If you're a believer, you will be there. If you're, if you're a believer, you will take part in that event. Now we're going to talk more about God's heart for the nations together in, a, in the next couple of, of weeks. But to close today, what I'd like to do is point out a couple of ways that we can apply this passage in our lives. The first is build your identity on Christ. Build your identity on Christ. And I, want, I want to explain what I mean by that. I was wary of, of using that language because Christianity is different than any, any identity you pursue in this world. See, the Christian identity is not one that you achieve. It's one that you receive. It's not, the, it's not one that you accomplish by your own efforts or, or performance or skill. Instead, it's one that you receive because of Christ's work. It's because of Christ's perfect, perfect love. Now, a question for you to consider is, where do you get your sense of significance from? Why do you view your life as, as valuable or important? I love what, what we see just the very next chapter in Genesis where God, he calls Abraham. And there's this great contrast to the, the Tower of Babel where they're trying to make a great name for themselves. Abraham wasn't, and this is what God promises him when he calls him. He says, I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. The same word for name. Abraham wasn't trying to make a great name for himself. And God says, I will give you a great name. And if you are a Christian, you have just as great a name. You've, you have received just as incredible of an inheritance as Abraham did. 
1 John is one of my favorite verses that helps capture this. The apostle says, See what great love the, the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. If you're a Christian, you could not have a sweeter or more significant or more secure identity. You can know and walk with your creator because of Jesus Christ. Revelation 2, 17, it hits on this same incredible reality. It's a promise given to, to all Christians, all those who have faith and overcome the world. There's a promise made at the end of this verse where God says, I will also give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one, that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, from my understanding, at that time in Rome, white stones were often used as, as almost like a ticket. It would, just, it would show you could be admitted into an assembly or into some event. And what Christ is saying here is he's saying that if your faith is in me, not only do you have access to heaven, but when you're there, I'm going to give you a name that nobody else knows except me. It makes me think of my family. I have nicknames for my kids that almost nobody else calls them that name. You know, I have terms of endearment for my wife that would be offensive if anyone else, you know, called her except me. It'd be weird and awkward. And I think what God is saying here, what God is proving here, is that if you're a Christian, you're not just generically a child of God. No, you are a unique and precious child to him. And in heaven, he's going to give you a name that only you and him know. That's the type of intimacy that God desires. That's the way that God knows us. Some of you are, are maybe here thinking, as I have in the past, I, I see that's what I need to build my life on. <laughs> but so often, I'm just distracted. And I, I actually get caught up in worrying what other people think and influenced by that instead of by Christ. How, how do you build your life on Christ? So again, it's, it's based first off of his work, but there is a part that we have to play. In Romans, it tells us that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so what I'd encourage you to do, if, if this strikes a chord with you, if you recognize, I need, I need to change in this area, what I'd encourage you to do is memorize a few passages that speak specifically about your identity in Christ as a Christian. Memorize those and then just commit to every day, try to every day just review them and pray and ask that God would help you to see yourself through his eyes. I'm not saying you can't read anything else in the Bible, but I just say, if this is important, then take some time, memorize some verses and think about them, stew, stew on them. To close, one last quick thought is to be united building the kingdom of Christ. Be united building the kingdom of Christ. We see in this passage that human unity, it can accomplish a lot. The scriptures affirm that all over the place. And if the people of Babel, and if they united to try and, and build a tower out of pride, how much more sense does it make? How, how much more should we as Christians unite to build the kingdom of our Savior? As we talked about last week, to give, give our lives, our energy, set up our relationships, our time, to give that all to point people to, to the one who died and made it possible for us to, to know him and be in a relationship with him. Let's go ahead and close. Close there with prayer. Lord,